Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Well, good afternoon, church. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open them up to the Gospel according to John, the fourth Gospel in your Bibles, and we're opening them up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. <coughs> now, Bible reading will be from verses 40 through to 42. John chapter 10, let's read from verse 40. He went away across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's come to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask his blessing upon our time together. Well, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, as you can probably already see by the text or the verses that I've got you to, to read or we read together just earlier, it is my intention to bring this wonderful chapter, John chapter 10, to a close this evening. It's been my absolute joy to work through this chapter reasonably slowly. We could have gone slower, we could have gone faster, but it's just been my absolute joy to work through and unpack the glorious words of our Lord and everything that pertains to those words when he says that I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. It's taken us a little over six months to get through this chapter. But what a chapter it's been. These words in chapter 10, I've said earlier, sermons have been, have been the source and the substance of Christian's joy and peace and comfort for, for some 2,000 years. The whole Bible is precious, don't get me wrong. But I suspect that most Christians have a special place in their heart for what is written and the truths that are found in John chapter 10. So now as we, we think about John chapter 10, we, we, and we've gone through most of the chapter, we've only got a few verses left, and now we're able to ask the question, why? Why is it that Christians throughout generations, from every walks of life, from every generation, why is it that Christians have derived so much comfort and so much strength and so much peace so much security, so much assurance from the promises that we find here in John chapter 10. We can answer that question, why? Because we've been through John chapter 10 already. And let me tell you what we don't find in John chapter 10. What we don't find is 
anything to do with building up your self-esteem. What we don't find in chapter 10 is, is nothing of the emotional pep talks that the world so convinces us is necessary so that you may try a little harder and in doing so you can accomplish anything you want to accomplish. You can do it. You don't find any of that in John chapter 10. There's nothing here that tells you to look deep into your heart and into my heart and to find a spark of greatness because you are great in and of yourself. I don't see any of that. None of that, in fact, in John chapter 10. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Everyone knows you can't expect much from sheep. John 10 has been providing Christians all over the world in all generations with indescribable peace precisely because it takes your eyes and mine off self and places them square upon the great shepherd of the sheep. It places our eyes, our hope, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a word, John chapter 10 is a chapter about Christ. However, the same timeless truths that are found in John chapter 10, on the one hand, have been the source and the substance of so much joy and peace for Christians throughout the generations. And yet, on the other hand, is the very cause of so much antagonism and and, and hatred, murderous anger, you might even say. Because what we have in John chapter 10, towards the end, is the Jews picking up stones, you remember, to stone our Lord because they don't like what he says. They don't like his teachings. They don't like his claims. They don't like what he stands and says who he is. Why? It's because the people in this day, they're they're used to hearing the the metaphors about sheep and shepherds. That's not a problem to them. But the difference is what they're used to seeing in the villages and the the townships that were nearby is not what Christ is claiming. Because Christ is not claiming to simply be a shepherd of the sheep, but he's claiming to be the divine shepherd of the sheep. That he and the Father are one. That's what they don't like. And so to them, this is blasphemy, and blasphemy is a crime punishable by by death, and they want Christ gone. The blasphemer. Now, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them, because in the Old Testament, we've been through this passage on two occasions, as we worked our way through John chapter 10. In, In the Old Testament, the chapter that speaks or foretells of the good shepherd to come, speaks in the way that God himself is the good shepherd. God himself is the one who seeks and saves that which was lost. God himself will come and gather his sheep. He will seek after them. He will gather them. He will tend their needs and he will, he will cover their wounds and he will place a shepherd over them. God himself does all the work. So it shouldn't have been a surprise for these Jews. However, they don't like the fact that Jesus is claiming to be this God. And so they try to stone him. And when Jesus asks why they wanted to stone him for what good work, you remember what they did. The last time we were in John, we spoke to this point. They divorced what Jesus has done, his works, from his words. And they began to say, according to what you said. And Jesus said, hold on, you can't divorce my works from my words. But I'll allow it for now. And then he refutes their claim to blasphemy. And then he takes them back and says, now what do you have to say about the things I have done? Because if you're honest, you'll come to the recognition and the acceptance 
that the works I have done can only be done by the mighty power of the Father himself. And once you come to that recognition, you will know that the Father, his hand and his power is in the works and therefore the hand of the Father is in my words. And if you claim that I'm a blasphemer, when you take my works into consideration, you cannot but now accept that I am who I claim to be. But do the angry Jews listen to our Lord? Do they reconsider their position, their stance, their unbelief? Well, verse 39 tells us, they may have dropped the stones from their hand, but their hearts are just as resolute to eliminate our Lord. But they'll do it in another way. They've come to their senses now, so they're going to still be purposed in their heart to eliminate the Lord, but they'll, they'll do it in a way that they won't violate the Roman law and get themselves and their community into a world of trouble. But instead, they will plan to arrest Christ, to apprehend Christ, even now in the text. That's what they'll try to do. Apprehend him and take him by force. So what we have in verse 39, so they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. We don't always stop to unpack the nuances in the gospel according to John. I've done some as we worked our way through the first 10 chapters, but, but there's many more and, and you have to make a decision. Otherwise, otherwise, the sermons will be a lot longer than they already are. But this is one I have to mention. The, the, the Jews dropped the stones, as I said earlier, but only in order to grab Jesus, only in order to apprehend him. Only in order to, to arrest our Lord. Now, where are they? Let's not forget that. Because sometimes we're reading the text and we think he's out there somewhere in the field, in the dusty road, preaching, and his, and his disciples are behind him. No, they're actually in the temple, precinct. Jesus is cornered. He's outnumbered by the religious leaders of the day who have gone and collected stones. Yes, they've dropped the stones, but now they've apprehended him. They have hands upon him. They've grasped the Lord. That's where they are. He's cornered. He's trapped. He's got nowhere to go and he's outnumbered. But somehow he got away. Possibly supernaturally, very likely supernaturally, I should say. But nonetheless, he, he got away. But how does the Apostle John describe it? Listen to what he says. He, that is Christ, escaped from their hands. Do, 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 do you get the connection? Let, let me help you get the connection. Put your eyes down to verse 28. Verse 28. Jesus speaking. My sheep, same crowd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is greater than them and greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Millions of sheep, Jesus is saying. This man that stands before you, millions of sheep, my followers, my sheep are in my hand and they're secure and safe. No one can take them out and no one can come and break them in. They cannot escape from my hand. And here you are, all the religious leaders. You've all surrounded me. You've outnumbered me. You've got hands on me and you can't even hold a single man. Look at the difference between the power of God and the power of man. 
The power of God in His hand, the sheep. Grasping them, and no one can take them away. They will not escape from my hand. But the apostle John tells that he is their hand. How weak is man, beloved? And how powerful is God? But it's actually a very sad reality. Because verse 30, 39 essentially brings the duty and public ministry of our Lord to, to a close. The next time our Lord will return to Jerusalem, he'll, he'll come back to be crucified. He'll come back to lay down his life for his sheep. These Jews won't be exposed to any more of his teaching, any more of his miracles, any more of his kind invitations to come and drink from him. The light of the world will now depart from among them. And when the light departs, what's left behind? Pitch darkness. The Jews have rejected the Messiah, the anointed one from God, the one they've been anticipating for centuries. And now they've turned their back on him. They've rejected him. And now he's departing from among them, and there's no more light. Jerusalem has become pitch black. They're here now at the temple celebrating the feast of dedication. Celebrating the temple. But they're not able to recognize the true temple of God who stands before them. They're not able to recognize the only place where God meets with man is in and through his son, Jesus Christ. That temple they, they celebrate was always pointing to Christ. It was a type and a shadow of the true temple, the true place where God meets with man in Jesus Christ. They preferred the structure. They preferred the institution than the substance that is wholly found in Jesus Christ. You see, the institution will be brought to rubble what happens to the type and the shadow once the substance has come? It's gone for good. It'll be completely brought into rubble. Their system that they've built, this system of Judaism, it's worthless apart from recognizing that the old covenant was pointing to the new and the new covenant is now ratified in the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everything they believe, the joy that they're rejoicing right now in the temple will be all brought to rubble in only about a generation's time. Actually, our Lord says, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, speaking about Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Such dark, deep deception that the Son of God, the Lord of glory, would be before them and they would not know it. And now he's departed. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Yes, this is a reformed church. Seek the Lord while he may be found.
You know, I was moved as I was preparing, um, you know, working my way through John chapter 10 in the last six months. I, I was actually moved in my being for these Jews. They're, they're 2,000 years gone. But I was moved in my being. But I tell you what terrified me even more than the thought of where they are now. The thought that, Bernie, this could have been you. No, no, I want you to hear me now. Bernie, this could be you. This is the thing about deception. You don't always know you are being deceived. I don't know about you, beloved, but that terrifies me. Absolutely terrifies me. And you know what? In that state of, honestly, in that state of recognizing this truth, there's nothing I can do apart from saying, Lord, keep me in your hand. Keep me in your hand. Keep my eyes upon you. Have my heart completely overtaken to trust in you. May I always have a heart that is disposed to loving you and to follow you. Lord, by your power, keep me by faith. Keep me in your hand. Deception is absolutely real. Salvation is of the Lord, beloved, and that's a humbling, humbling reality. So our our Lord withdraws from Jerusalem and he crosses over to the Jordan to essentially the place where his public ministry all began. It's at the place where John was actually baptizing. You remember the story. And he'll be there for about three to four months before he, he makes his final return to, to Jerusalem. It's, it's actually actually difficult, quite difficult to know exactly where the Lord departed to because uh, John the Baptist he, he, he went all over the Jordan River and he was baptizing and ministering all over. Actually, Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 3. He says that he went over, all over the region, region of the Jordan River. However, the fact that the Apostle John, who is the author of this book, tells us back when he, uh, after introducing John in chapter 1, he'll, he'll tell us that, that John is baptizing in the wilderness, but he gives us the name of the area he's baptizing in and tells us it's a place called Bethany, a place called Bethany. So I think it's, it's fair to say that the, the Apostle John is telling us he's, he's just gone back. Jesus has now gone back to a place called Bethany. Now, we have to be careful not to mix our geography because Bethany is also the well-known Bethany, at least what you would know and I would know as the, mo- the main Bethany in the word, is the place where, where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live, right? The, the place that is about, uh, about two kilometers uh, east of, of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives. But that's not the Bethany that is spoken of here. This is a different Bethany. Remember, this is, we're told in text that he went over, he crossed over the Jordan. That Bethany where Lazarus will be, and we'll find, we'll, the context of the next chapter is in, in Bethany. That Bethany is on the western side of the Jordan, and he's speaking about the Bethany on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, having said that, that doesn't make it any easier because there's two possible locations, even on the east. And both of them are along the banks of the Jordan River. One is on the, the top end of the Sea of, uh, of the Dead, Dead Sea, around maybe 30 kilometers away from Jerusalem, on the eastern side of the Jordan. And the other possible location is to the north, 
uh, around 80 or 90 kilometers away from Jerusalem to the north, closer to Galilee, but about maybe 20 kilometers south of the Sea of Galilee. So you remember the Sea of Galilee is in the north and you have the, the Dead Sea in the south and then you have that Jordan River that connects both. Now it's very likely going by the timestamps in the Bible and hopefully I can make it a little clearer as we work our way through chapter 11 that it is the northern point where Christ is going. That is the one, that is the, the likely place would be just under the Sea of Galilee. But either way, it's when the public ministry of our Lord began. And it's essentially when it all comes to a close. We've gone full circle with our Lord. This is the place where our Lord was baptized by his forerunner, John the Baptist. Now, now to be honest, I, I did contemplate the other week to, to include this paragraph, 40, 41, 42, into the sermon that I preached last. I was thinking maybe I can make a remark or two and then we can start fresh in chapter 11 and begin our way through chapter 11. However, it's, it's actually been quite a while since we've meaningfully unpacked the life of John the Baptist. In fact, I looked it up. The last time we were meaningfully uh, spoken of, or John the Baptist was spoken of in any of the sermons, was back in June of 2019. It's been three years, so we're just about due, I think. In fact, his name is not going to come back again in the Gospel according to John, and at the rate we're working our way through, it's likely it's going to be a long time since we bring him back to the table. So I, if you know me, you, you would know that I greatly admire this man. And so I would relish the opportunity even to briefly consider his vibrant, spirit-filled life and his faithful testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially in light of what we have in verse 41. You see that legacy he left behind? He left behind a legacy that everything he spoke about this man is, is true. A man who loved the truth. He's a man who loved the Lord, and he walked in the ways of the Lord. And this is a testimony of what the Spirit of God can do in the life of a believer. And beloved brothers and sisters, if the Apostle Paul is able to declare, imitate me as I imitate Christ, then I think it would not be too much of a stretch to afford John the Baptist the same courtesy. Now John was exactly a he wasn't exactly a well-presented man. He wasn't all spruced up. He wasn't, you know, he wouldn't call him a, a polished up guy, right? We, we know that. He lived in the wilderness. The, the, the grubby sand and the, and the dust and, and the mud. That's where he made his, his life. He was likely a very heavily bearded man. And, and the clothing he wore was camel's hair. And the only thing that kept it on his body from what we know is a belt of leather around his waist. His diet consists of, of locusts and, and honey. I understand the honey bit. I don't understand the locust, but that was, that was his, his diet. And his appearance was nothing like the modern-day preacher. <laughs> I, I, I suspect he was more like a, a wild beast of a man. In other words, if the first time you came across John the Baptist, if it so happened to be in the night, 
I would suspect you will run in the opposite direction, at least until he opened his mouth. Because for what I can see, he was a gracious man. He was filled with the spirit in his mother's womb, we're told. And he wasn't interested in appearances or in the world's possessions. He only had one concern, to be faithful in fulfilling his mission that God had given him, to be faithful to speak the truth of God. You see, most in the day recognized John the Baptist as a prophet, even the religious leaders to begin with recognized John the Baptist to be a prophet, a man who opened his mouth and spoke the words of God. He was a man who who was the mouthpiece of God. And the reason why I admire him is not because he only spoke, he talked the talk, but he's a man who actually walked the walk. His life was indicative, was evidence that he believed in what he said. So much so, so much so, that many around him also saw that evidence in his life. Now at this stage, lest you think I'm sinning by exalting a mere man, which I don't intend to do, let me, let me return you to a safe place by framing what I'm about to say through the parameters that Scripture gives us, just so I don't I go out of place with speaking to John the Baptist. So the best place to go would be in the prologue of John in verse 6. You don't have to turn there, you can trust me when I read it. John chapter 1, verse 6 reads this way, There was a man sent from God, and this is the first time we're introduced to John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John wasn't the light. John wasn't the saviour of the world. John was not the hope of humanity. John the Baptist was not. He was bearing witness about the light. We know who is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. So John, his function, his mission was to bear witness about the light. And he bore that witness faithfully. He reflected the light faithfully. Our Lord said so in, in John chapter 5, verse 33 through 35. He gave John the accolade of being truthful in his, in his witness. But John was such a faithful witness in reflecting the light of God, the light of Christ, so much so that the people in his day were actually considering in their hearts whether he himself is the Christ. In Luke chapter 3, verse 15, that's what we're told. Is he? That's what people were thinking. Could this John be the Christ himself? So when the Pharisees, who likely had the same idea in their mind, they, they wanted to confirm, once they seen John and, and all the people flocking out into the wilderness to see this great prophet, and he's attracting all people from all the regions, they sent out a delegation of Levites and priests, and he, they sent them out with the intention to find out who this John is from his own mouth. Who are you? And, and John was very, very careful, because he says immediately, I am not, I'm not the Christ. They're coming out to ask the question, tell us, are you the Christ? That's what they had on their mind, on their heart. And John says, no, I'm not the Christ. They asked Jesus, only a few verses back, 
Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? No, John says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, that's John 1, 28. The Baptist knew who he was. The Baptist knew his mission. He knew what he was called to do. He knew he was to be the forerunner to Christ. He knew he is the one who bears witness to the light. That means there is one who is far more glorious than him to come. He was raised, beloved, to call Israel to repentance. To be baptized in, in a symbol of, of cleansing them of their sins. Israel, you've sinned, you've turned your back against a good and holy God. You've chosen darkness over light. Repent. Repent. Cleanse yourself from your sins. Repent. Trust the Lord. Repent of your sins and turn your eyes to the Lord for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming. The Messianic King is coming. The one who is anointed of God is coming. I know that he's coming because God has sent me out as the forerunner to the Messiah. I know he's coming. Israel, prepare your hearts. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's baptism was a baptism of, of repentance. That was his message, to call Israel to repentance, to get ready to meet her Savior. Prepare your hearts to meet the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the whole of the Old Testament. It's being fulfilled in our generation. Israel, get ready to meet your Savior And he goes on and he says, for the one who is coming is greater than I. He knows his, play, his place. He knows his part. I'm not the main deal. The one who's coming is, is greater than I. You see, I'm baptizing with water. I'm baptizing you with, with, with water as a, a symbol that you need to be cleaned and cleansed of your sin. In other words, true repentance to God. And the symbol is to be cleansed from your sin with the water baptism. But the one who comes after me, he will not baptize you with water, but rather he'll be baptizing you with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he'll also baptize with fire. And then he says something remarkable. The one who comes after me, his sandals I'm so unworthy to untie. What a massive statement that the prophet would say. And he was a great prophet. Do you remember what Jesus said about this man? Was there a greater born from a woman? So, so a prophet of God, one who's amassed a massive following, and he tells his hearers, that the one who comes after me is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Beloved brothers and sisters, in the first century, you had a relationship going between the rabbi and the pupil. And it was the rabbi loved his pupils and the pupils honored and loved their rabbi. They would practically do anything. In fact, anything the rabbi would ask him to do, they would normally joyfully and willfully oblige. However... There are lines that need to be drawn, and that line was drawn at untying his sandals. 
but they're not going to head, get their hands onto his grubby feet and his grubby shoes. No, that's beneath us. That would be a, a task fitting for a slave. And here John the Baptist, what humility from a, such a great man. I'm not even willing to be his slave. I'm not even willing to be his slave. If you want the view that John the Baptist had of the Messiah, just think of those words for a few moments. The great prophet says, I'm not even willing to be his slave. The great one is coming, Israel. Get ready. So when Jesus finally makes it on the scene, he goes over to this place called Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, and he comes to John. And this is when Jesus' ministry is about to begin. And he comes to John so that he would be baptized. And John is very reluctant. You should be baptizing me. The confirmation comes a little bit later. Actually, the confirmation of John comes a little later. But there's no doubt the Spirit of God is working in and through him even now. But then Jesus says, you must baptize me because this is to fulfill all righteousness. And so John obeys. And he obeys and he baptizes our Lord. And in the moment he baptizes our Lord, we're told that the heavens open. The Spirit of God comes down like a dove and it comes upon Christ and it remains or he remains, my apology, on Christ. And the voice from heaven is heard. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's at that moment that John the Baptist knew this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one of God. This is the savior of Israel. This is the this Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, all the way to Genesis 3:15. It says that the day will come where the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the, the, the seed of, uh, of the head of Satan. He, he knew this Jesus is the one, and so the message and the mission of John the Baptist went from warning Israel because the Messiah is coming to now saying, Israel, behold your king. Israel, behold your savior. Israel, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Israel, meet the son of God. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. That was his testimony. This is what resided in the hearts of the people who heard him out there in the wilderness. That this is the Son of God. The very words that found great offense to the religious leaders in the temple space against Jesus, John the Baptist declared in the wilderness. And now being executed for some time, his words remain in the hearts and in the minds of his people, of these people who had heard him. And it resonates in their heart and in their soul. And they say, this John the Baptist spoke, whatever he spoke about this man, speaking about Jesus, is true. That was the legacy he left behind. That he was a man of truth. A man who spoke to truth. Now I submit to you, I believe, it is my conviction that never before has there been a prophet in the land of Israel who has amassed such a great following like John the Baptist. The text tells us 
that all the people of the land, all people from all over the land, my apologies, came to the wilderness to hear him. They flocked out from everywhere just to come. But what did they come out to see? Verse 41 tells us, it gives us some insight. It says, John, he did no sign. They didn't come out to see miracles because miracles weren't done at the hand of John the Baptist. They, they didn't come out to see spectacular fates because they weren't done in the hands of the Baptist. They didn't come out to see this massive show or exhibition. There was none of that in the ministry of John the Baptist. The masses came out. The massive crowds followed into the wilderness and they flocked out there. Why? To watch this wild beast of a man speak the truth of God's salvation through the coming Messiah and then to the one who's been confirmed as the Messiah, the Messianic King, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They came out to hear him preach. So filled with the Spirit and the truth of God that what attracted them out to the wilderness was not his facade, I can tell you that much. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't anything apart from the declarations of truth that came out of his mouth. And when the religious leaders at one point would come out to intimidate John, he stood his ground. Truth is truth. He stood his ground. He rebuked them, but he, he stood his ground because the truth that came out of his mouth, he knows to be true. He received it from the Lord and he wasn't about to budge. Everything John said, verse 31, everything John said about this man is true. I, I love the way they, they remember the topic of this discussion. This man. The focal point of John was this man. What John spoke about was this man. Christ was the, was the discussion on his lips. He spoke of Christ. No greater subject on the lips of man than Christ. No greater subject in the heart of man than Christ. Beloved, I, I can tell you that John loved Jesus. I can tell you that his heart was encapsulated by Christ. And I know that because biblically that which comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what is in your There's a direct correlation. John loved the Lord. Because you can hear him speak and you knew who he had affection for. So my question to you is, if one hears you speak, what will they say you love? John is long gone and yet people are still saying, all that he said about this man is true. Not only was John willing to give up all the creature comforts in order to find his way out into the wilderness and live in the barren wastelands, a difficult life, but even his fame, even the popularity that he had amassed 
in his ministry, which I said earlier, I don't think a single prophet in the land had even come close to the popularity of John the Baptist. But it, but it didn't matter to John. His desire was to simply faithfully accomplish his calling. To, to, to him, it was all about being faithful to God with the mission he had given him. Two stages. One, to say to Israel, repent and be baptized. Prepare your hearts for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the next stage, as I said, is to now being confirmed that Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, to point Israel to her king. Two stages. And, and if someone was to take all his fame and all his popularity and take it all away, was he concerned? In fact, no, he wasn't concerned. And we know that as a fact, because there was a point in his ministry where his ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was overlapping the ministry of Christ. Fairly shortly after Jesus was baptized, went into the wilderness, and then he was tempted 40 days and nights, and he began his earthly ministry. There's a time where the, John the Baptist's ministry was overlapping the ministry of Christ, and then John is captured, and of course we know the story. He's, he's, then, be, he's been, then beheaded. And there was a time when this was taking place, when John's disciple, one of John's disciples, comes to him and says, Rabbi, in distress, everyone, everyone is going to Jesus. They're deserting you, John. They're leaving us and they're going, they're going to Jesus. John, what are you going to do about it? You're losing popularity, John. You're, you're losing followers. John, your disciples are departing from among you and they're going to someone else. Now that would be a hit to someone's pride. How did he respond? Well, I have to read how he responded because I could not possibly say it better than he does. In John chapter 3, verse 27 through 30, he says, if you like, you can open your Bibles there. It's a good passage to have in your heart. So John chapter 3, verse 27 through 30. John chapter 3, from verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. You need to understand the context. Remember we said that they are, they are departing from John and going to Christ. And Jesus says, well, they don't belong to me anyway. They belong to the Lord. They've been given by the Lord. Verse 29, I'm sorry, 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Is John saying, I'm not the main thing. I'm not the main thing. I'm, I'm not the one who should take center stage. I, I had a mission. The Lord has given me a mission. And for me, I, I'm only to accomplish my calling, my mission, faithfully. And that is only insofar as I hear the voice 
of the bridegroom. The best man is not the main deal. When a couple are being wed, the attention is not on the best man. It's on the bridegroom. And John says that when the bridegroom, I prepare in the background, I do all these things, but when the, when the, as the best man, but when the bridegroom comes, I need to humbly step aside, fade off in the background, and, and let the, the bridegroom, who is Christ, take center stage and receive all the glory that is due his name, all of it. In other words, John is saying, I'm, I'm a candle who's been burnt joyfully in the service of my king. And I don't want anything back in return other than to him or for him to be glorified. So you tell me my fame is being diminished. You're telling me my popularity is being reduced. My renown is going down, that my followers are departing, that my disciples are finding their way and becoming disciples of Christ. Thank you. That's <laughs> what so John's message is. He says, Thank you. You've just made my day. My joy is now complete. That is my purpose. That is my mission, not to hold on to them, but when the Savior comes, to introduce them to Him. And the fact that they're going to Christ brings my joy completion. My heart is rejoicing at this news. No pride. No glory. Christ deserves all the glory. I'm but a vessel, and my joy is to do His will. So I'm losing disciples and they're becoming disciples of Christ. Praise God is what John's saying. And the author of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, who wrote these words, would know because he was one of those disciples who left John and went to Christ. The apostle John was a disciple of John the Baptist. So he would know. Now, beloved brothers and sisters, I want you to ask yourselves, is that your heart's desire? I know it's a high calling, and you're not the forerunner to Christ. You haven't been given a mission in the, in the breadth of the mission of John the Baptist, but you have a calling. The question to you is, are you prepared to be fully spent for his service? Are you prepared to be like a candle that is burning in the, in the service of your great king and find joy simply in pointing people to Christ? Or are we more concerned with the accolades of this world, the applauds that this world will give us, the trophies that we can amass in the things of this world? But my prayer for myself and for you is for the words of verse 30 in John chapter 3 to be a reality in your heart and mind, to actually be the theme of our lives. When he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know what that is? 
death to self. Death to self and glory to the Son of God, to the triune God in Christ Jesus. That was his legacy and it continued to ring true even after his death. He wasn't around to see the full results of his labor, of his faithfulness to God, of his, of his preaching and his courage to stand in the face of, of men who want to intimidate him and hurt him, but continue to preach the truth, the truth that God has entrusted to him. A truth that really, he's a man of conviction who stood on his ground that, that cost him his neck. He wasn't around to, to enjoy the full outcome. But nonetheless, he was, he was concerned to walk faithfully and then leave the outcomes to the Lord. Beloved, this is such an encouragement to my heart and I hope it is to yours. I was speaking to some brothers yesterday and this, and this came up without yet knowing about what, what the sermon is about. And one of the brothers said, and I'm paraphrasing of course, we faithfully sow the seed not knowing when or even if it'll produce fruit one day. But we continue to sow. We sow it faithfully. I love that. It's, it's a biblical truth. John got it. And many Christians get it. And beloved brothers and sisters, the sooner we get that, the sooner we'll release ourselves from burdens that we're not meant to carry. You see, the outcome, the outcomes are never in your hands. They're always in His. But you've been called to walk faithfully, eyes fixed upon Christ, and walk according to the light of His Word. The question is, when it's all said and done, the question the Lord is going to ask is, have you walked faithfully with what I have given you? You're not responsible for what happens in a year or two or ten or twenty a lot of what you do today, you may never even reap the results. You've got to leave that in his hands. Pragmatism is so rampant in the world today. It's king. It's like, it's like think of the outcome and then, and then work to, towards that outcome. Can you see how dangerous that is? Yes, we want glorious outcomes. But they're, but they're in, the, in the Lord's hands. They're not in yours. If you focus simply at the outcome... And the question is, what will you compromise to get there? You see the point? Fathers, let's start with husbands. Husbands, you, you don't know what your marriage is going to look like in 5, 10, 20, 30. You don't, you don't, you don't know. But you're not called to know. You're called to trust in the one who does know and walk faithfully and lay down your life in love for your wife and lead her according to how Christ leads his church. Wives, you, you don't know what your marriage is going to be like in a year or two or five or ten. But you've been called according to the light of scripture to submit to your husbands, to love him and to be as Christ is. Never you mind what happens in a year or five or ten. Never you mind. Parents, fathers and mothers, how we bring up our children. Do you know that's a difficult concept? When you think about these little ones growing up and you just don't know. You don't know what they're going to turn out like. Because ultimately, it is in the Lord's hands, but you've been instructed to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. 
Samuel was a godly man. His children, both sons, were, were quite evil. Wanting to know the outcomes and wanting to know what happens in, in the future is like, well, it's paganism. It's like going to a fortune teller or a diviner and saying, can you please tell me what happens in a year or five or ten? It's not biblical. It's, it's, not, it's not biblical. Let's bring it to the church. Beloved, I know where our hearts are. And the Lord knows that we want to see every one of us grow in our love for the Lord, love for one another, grow deeper in our spiritual relationship with the Lord. We, we want to grow in Him. We want to be more like Christ. Praise be to His name. But there's also an element that we want to see growth numerically. Wouldn't it be lovely that the Lord would add to our number, the Lord add to our number, that we wouldn't be able to fit in this building and we need to find another place altogether. But it's the Lord that needs to add. How many ministries have gone into the plunger because that's been the goal? This, this, this big vision that we're going to have thousands of people and we're going to have massive buildings and structures. Amen, if that's the Lord's hand that is in it. But if that's the focal point, Think about how many compromises that one would compromise to get that focal point or that outcome. To bring them in? Who can bring them in? Who can save a person? Salvation is of the Lord. Beloved brothers and sisters, only Christ, only the Lord is able to save a person, convert a person from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. Only he's able to keep them, keep them in the palm of his hand, in the hand of the Father, and, and preserve them until the end. If that is the concern, then we start to think, how can we bring them in, and then how can them, can we keep them on the seats? And this is the problem. To the world, the gospel is foolishness. Unless God moves. And the only way you can bring them in into the church is to allure them by what they want to be allured by, and that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, because that's all the world is concerned with. They're not concerned with holiness, or righteousness, or any of these things. Stand our ground. May the Lord give us to stand our ground and not compromise, and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Hear this, speaking the truth in love. In gentleness and with respect. The gospel itself is an offense. Let's not us be an offense also. It needs to be spoken in love and with gentleness. And if the Lord's hand is in it, beloved brothers and sisters, we speak it without compromise. And then we press into the sinner in love and we plead with him to trust in Christ. To repent of their sins. To believe upon the only saviour for their soul. We plead with sinners. And then we come to the Lord and we fall on our knees and we pray for them. Weep over them. Because he's the one who can save them. It's not your power of persuasion. For you and I, what it comes down to is this. Truth. Are we proclaimers of truth? John the Baptist, he understood this. Because in time that came when he was in the grave, buried by his disciples, after he was beheaded, 
what people could remember about him is what he spoke about this man to be. All that he spoke about this man is true. He wasn't around to see the fruit of his, the fullness of the fruit of his ministry. But I'm sure he didn't care because he believed and he walked according to the word that the Lord has given him, according to the calling that the Lord had given him. The question is, are we prepared to be a candle being burnt for the sake of Christ? Because Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice and they follow after me. If his sheep hear his voice and they will follow after him, and he's the one who opens ears and eyes and brings to life that which was dead, then it's up to you and I to be working and laboring in the means that he has given us because the Lord is just as concerned with the means as he is the ends. If our eyes are on the ends and we're not concerned with the means, that's not Christianity. To walk by faith is to walk according to the instruction and the calling that the Lord has given us. And Jesus says he sent out his church, his disciples, and by extension the church to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And he works in and through the proclamation of the gospel to draw sinners unto himself. His sheep, he will, he will seek them and he'll save them, but he does it through you and I, beloved. Not begrudgingly, but if that's the joy of our life and we've experienced the love of Christ and we are overwhelmed with what he has done for us, then how can we but overflow with that love for others and want others to also experience the same And many came to him, that is to Christ, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And hear this, 42, last verse in John chapter 10. And many believed in him there. I want us to see the distinction here because it's so, so important. When John... The Baptist was alive. He had a ministry of proclaiming, of preaching powerfully by the power of the Spirit. And now what we have here after John's death is you have a people who remembered the words of John. They recognized that John's words are true. Okay, that's what we got. They remembered the words of John. And they recognize that John's words are true. But then they believed in Jesus. They didn't believe in John. A true minister of the word proclaims the truth in a way that he leads sinners to Christ. It doesn't say here they believed in John. They believed in him. That is Christ. They believed in Jesus Christ because John made it clear that the hope of humanity, the only Savior, the only one who can cleanse you from your sins, proclaiming that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is this Christ. How much he understood about all that, I'm not actually sure to be honest, but he spoke by the power of the Spirit and the truth of God and he declared that this Jesus is the Son of God so that when they put two and two together, the culmination of all that John said, they could not but recognize that John was pointing them to Christ. 
and they bent their knee and believed upon him. You see how John is taken out of the equation and all glory be to Christ. They placed their trust, not in John, but in Christ. The question is now, beloved brothers and sisters, I said actually, let me end with this. I, I said at the beginning of the sermon, if you remember, that John chapter 10 in a word, is a chapter about Christ. In fact, we could say that about every chapter in the Bible, right? It all points to Jesus Christ. And that's true. That's the hermeneutic that Jesus has given us. Everything in Scripture testifies to the Lord. Everything in Scripture is pointing to the salvation, the, the climax, the absolute zenith of all humanity, of everything in creation that is pointing to Christ. Everything in Scripture is pointing to Christ. But beloved, also, all of God's people ought to also be pointing to Christ. The lives we live ought to be a testimony, not to self, but to Christ. Yes, this John chapter 10 is a chapter in a word a chapter about christ beloved brothers and sisters john the baptist's life was a life that pointed people to christ can we say that about ourselves when it's all said and done what's the legacy that we keep behind is it one that is pointing or has pointed to people our loved ones our family our colleagues to the lord jesus christ what will they say of us once we're gone? Not that that matters for our ego, we're gone. But are we concerned in life to glorify God even in death? Even in death. Is that not why parents bring up or try to bring up a godly seed and bring up their children in the training and the instruction of the Lord? Let's pray.